Hi, I'm Jonathan Frakes. I played Commander Riker on Star Trek The Next Generation. And Captain Riker, if you happen to be watching Picard, and you're listening to Trek Untold. Hello and welcome back to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. This episode is a special one for me because this is the 50th episode of Trek Untold and almost the one year anniversary of us. What started as a pandemic project has become one of the fastest growing things I've ever made and also one of the most fulfilling. I knew I had to celebrate this special occasion with you by chatting with someone who was just as special. And since this is, after all, almost the number one anniversary of this podcast, why not speak to another number one? I am honored to say that on this week's episode, we are joined by the man, the myth, the beard, Mr. Jonathan Frakes. Frakes was Commander William Riker for all seven seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation and all four of the subsequent films, along with brief appearances in Voyager and Enterprise. Will Riker recently returned to the series, appearing in Star Trek Picard, as well as Lower Decks as Captain Riker, alongside his wife Deanna Troy on board the USS Titan. Aside from his prolific acting and voiceover career, Jonathan is also an accomplished director, having directed 25 episodes of different Trek shows and two of the movies, as well as episodes of The Librarian, NCIS Los Angeles, Burn Notice, Castle, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Roswell, and many more. And honestly, I could list a ton more of his accolades, but I had to fight the urge to fanboy over him as soon as our interview began, so I want to avoid that happening again during this intro. I felt very privileged to be able to spend some time with Mr. Frakes for this episode, so I hope you enjoy this chat and hopefully learn a few things about him that you never knew before. But before we jump into our interview, I want to ask you, are you following Trek Untold on social media? It's the best way to keep up to date on who's going to be the next guest on Trek Untold and to learn all about the other cool things that are happening here. So if you're on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, go ahead and look up Trek Untold, all one word, and give us a follow and a like. If you'd like to help support the show monetarily, go ahead and check out teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold to check out some of the merchandise we have available. This includes t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, sweatshirts, stickers, and a whole bunch more. So go ahead and check out teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold. You can also support our show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. If you become a paid subscriber to Trek Untold, you'll get first access to the show and a chance to ask our guests questions on future episodes. But most of all, please subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it or watching it. And if you've already done that, please also leave a review and a rating if you can. Leaving ratings and reviews helps increase the visibility of podcasts on platforms like iTunes and other places like it. It shows that you're listening and that you like it, and other people who are interested in the same subject are going to probably like it too. It helps us grow, it helps us get better guests, and it helps us keep bringing this amazing Trek Untold show to you. If you're already following us or have supported us in any other way, thank you, of course, for being a part of the Trek Untold family. There's a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there, and we're very grateful that you chose us to listen to. I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D printed Star Trek inspired toys and replicas for fans of all ages and toys of all sizes. But you'll hear more about them a little later on in the show. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. Hello and welcome back to Trek Untold and joining me on the other side of the line. If you need an introduction, 
I don't know why you're listening to this podcast at all, because we've got Mr. Jonathan Frakes here. Mr. Frakes, how's it going? Jonathan, please, Matthew. Well, Jonathan, so great to have you here. You know, I was telling you before we started, this is incredibly surreal, and I'm going to try my best to keep myself together, but I make no guarantees on that. We'll watch. At least you're rocking the full Riker beard. I'm doing my best. This uh, this is an honor of you. Yeah, I got nice and primmed and clean, too. I remember when my beard was black. (laughs) Let's go ahead and jump into some things here. And uh, I want to actually kick things off a little bit with uh, an organization you're working with right now. Uh, and that's the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. So uh, I'd love if you actually tell us a little bit about uh, why this is such an important issue for you. Oh, we're trying to raise money for the Pan Stride, which is a uh, a walk that we do here in L.A. on on May 1st. My brother, Daniel, the cute one of the family, died of pancreatic cancer when he was 41. And we took him to the hospital. They opened him up. They said, you've got about six months to live. And uh, Jeannie, my wife, was pregnant with our daughter Eliza at the time. So I went back and forth with Daniel and then I came home a few days before our baby was born. And, uh, and then he died right after that. So it was very sad. And obviously I, we used to live together in New York and we, we were, we were brothers who were very, very, very thick as thieves. Kitty Swink, who is our real leader at PanCan, who is a 17 year pancreatic cancer survivor and dear friend since the seventies. I shared this story with her somehow it came up. And then I told my mom when I used to go visit my mom that uh, a friend of mine is a survivor because when Daniel died, there was about a 3% survival rate. And when Kitty was diagnosed, there might've been a four or 5% survival rate. So, and there's now a 10% survival rate. So our objective among other things is to get the survival rate up you know, 50, 60, whatever we can possibly get it. So my connection is obviously the loss of my brother, but strangely, and even more importantly, Kitty's presence and hope was something that I used to share with my mom. And she would always ask me about my friend Kitty when I went to see her. So in a weird Daniel, without getting too esoteric, Daniel sort of lived on in Kitty for my mom and me. How's that grab you? That's a pretty great story. And yeah, Kitty Swink is part of this. Armin Shearman is also part of this. And you guys are raising funds for the uh, Purple Stride Los Angeles event, which is happening on May 1st. So uh, can you tell us uh, how our listeners can go and donate to the cause? I think you go right to the PanCan website. All the information you'll ever need is right there. I believe there's also kind of like a, a sort of contest going on also, right, for whoever can raise the most money or something? I would say there's a bit of a rivalry, which Kitty is currently <laughs> crushing us. I saw you're you're a little bit behind here, so we got to get freaks up today. Fundraiser. <laughs> all right, so Jonathan, I want to ask you the question I usually ask all my guests first, and I'm really curious what your answer is going to be to this one here. Uh, so, what is your earliest memory ever of Star Trek and the Star Trek franchise? Well, I'm one of the rare few who didn't have a real idea about what, uh, as you know, as a cultural icon, Star Trek was. I was not a. Uh, I mean, I knew I'd heard of Kirk and Spock, and I knew. I had a concept, but not not a concept like I have now since it's changed my life for the last 35 years, whatever it's been. So my first contact, if you will, was renting VCRs of the original series to get a sense of what this show was before I went to the auditions. Now, my wife, on the other hand, had a poster of uh, Shatner in her room, so she thought I was crazy and I didn't know enough about this show. But I have since learned and appreciated, and it has changed my life, obviously. 
that's just crazy. Because again, we're talking about VCRs, which I wonder how many of our listeners even know about. But also the fact that back in the day you had to rent VCRs too. That's such a foreign concept. I feel like today. Exactly. You have to go to uh, Blockbuster and you'd rent, you know, four or five episodes, sign them out. You'd be able to keep them for a week, and then you'd have to take them back and rent four or five more. That's the good old days. That's how I used to watch a lot of my stuff too. That I think was probably one of my first memories of uh, original series too. Was seeing the VHS and being like, "This is a next generation. What is this?" Yeah, but you weren't even born when Next Gen came on, were you? I, I was. I was around for Next Gen, but I was a little. Let's see, when it first started, I was definitely young, but I, I remembered it pretty well. All right. Yeah, but it is fun rewatching it now. You know, as an adult and just picking up on all the things you didn't catch when you were like, you know, four or five or six. So when did you become a hardcore trekker that you have your own podcast? Oh, that's fairly recent, actually. There was, you know, Star Trek has always been a thing that was in my life for, for quite some time, but kind of got away from it, started doing some other things, found some new obsessions as what happens in life. Uh, and then, oddly enough, it was actually a few years ago at a Comic-Con where I found someone selling a box of the action figures. And I had such great memories oh, of those as a kid. And so I, I, on the spot there, I just bought up like a dozen of these toys. And that's how it kind of just restarted again. So you want to tell some, do you want to hear a couple action figures, anecdotes, Oh, absolutely. I remember, in fact, my only Star Trek convention I've been to, because I've only had a chance to go to one, uh, you told an amazing one, so I'm, I'm going to see if we're going to get to that one. That's about your first figure. So, yeah, take it away, please. When I was doing my first convention, actually, in Syracuse, New York, uh, Kirk, Spock, and Bones were at the forefront of everyone's minds. we I don't even know if we had aired yet. So the audience was reluctant, is the good word, the kind word. Hostile might be more accurate. I was a nervous wreck. I had no idea what I had gotten myself into. I didn't know what this world meant. I didn't know anything about the, the conventions, the power of Star Trek, the loyalty of the fans of Star Trek, what is expected of me at this convention. I was in, it was the dead of winter in Syracuse. I'm in the, uh, in the dealer's room, which I guess people who are watching this will understand what that is. And I'm standing by a table that's selling the original action figures, the Galoobs, I guess they were, right? See, I got the name right. And um, they were like the younger, thinner version of all of us. And there was a table, and they were laid out, and they were selling a Geordi for 35 bucks, And then a limited dial-out data, which had a weird color on it, for 40 bucks, And Captain Picard for 50 bucks, And and at the end of the table, there was a sign. It says, buy any action figure, get Riker free. <laughs> You like that story. That's the story I heard at uh, a mission. In fact, I love that story. I always open my conventions with that. The <laughs> other good convention, uh, these action figures, one of the only advantages of being on the show was we got one of everything. So we, we had as uh, members of the cast that uh, we were given one wharf, one, you know what I'm saying? So in my kid, my kid was a baby. Our first Jameson who was born in life. So this would about right around the time we were making first contact, we had a big tub of action figures to play with because he was, you know, he was a kid and in there were people that he had met. So he pulled up uh, Patrick and he says, there's Patrick and he'd play with Patrick. And then he'd pull up Worf who we, I explained to him who Worf always said, Oh, that's Michael. And then he'd pull up Riker. He said, Oh, there's daddy. And he drowned me in the bathtub and drowned me in the bathtub like this. And then he pulled deep into the bucket of action figures and he'd pull out Gumby. You know who Gumby is? And he'd say, Dad, do you work with him too? I mean, to be fair, Gumby could have shown up on Star Trek anytime and just fit right in with the aliens. We're very, very pro-alien over there. 
And I don't know if you're aware, but uh, your first ever Playmates action figure, those are like the four inch ones that are a little bit thicker than the Gloobs. Uh, your first one is actually kind of a hot topic still in the figure community. Because for whatever reason, when that toy was made, it's like got all these like scars and rips across its chest and its pants. Were you aware oh, of that? What's up with that? Yeah, I, I actually uh, spoke to one of the sculptors. He he knows the story. I guess you haven't, you've never heard anything about that, right? No. Did I get ripped up like that in one of the shows? People like to say you did, or but that wasn't really true in the first season or even second, third seasons. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. But basically, they, they said that there was a mandate from Playmates that they wanted it to look more action packed. And that's oh. why you were all scraped up, I guess. So, yeah, go figure. How about the uh, the uh, Thomas Riker action figure from Deep Space Nine? I've got that one. Do you have a Thomas Riker too? That's in my uh, that's in the garage. Do you uh, do you usually pick up a lot of your merchandise with your own face on it, or is that something you're not really too keen on? No, I um, I actually sold all that stuff off at auction or charity or something because we didn't have any room left in the in the storage bin. I wish I had known you. I could have given you all that shit. You would have loved it. The paperbacks all the action figures, all the things that uh, they continue to make. I, I work now on, um, I still work with John Van Sitters at CBS, who's now sort of the merchandising guru. And I, not as often as we used to, but we get emails with sketches or pictures of models of what they hope will be, because they're now doing action figures for Picard. And now that uh, Captain Riker has been on Picard, I gather there will be an action figure, you know, with gray hair and a little heavier and glasses. So, <laughs> All right. So, Jonathan, I'd like to ask you about another actor that you worked with fairly early on in your career and someone whose name actually does come up a lot on this show, and that's John Cullum. And I know you guys work together on Shenandoah. I got to chat with him for another thing unrelated to Star Trek. Uh, amazing guy, amazing actor. I wanted to ask what you learned from John Cullum while working with him. That's fascinating that he would come up in this conversation. I stole Riker's walk from John Cullum. The only Broadway show I ever did was called Shenandoah, which is a musical about the Shenandoah Valley, which starred John Cullum. I think he won a Tony Award for it. In the Star Trek world, Nana Visitor's father was the choreographer on the show. So I went in as a replacement after the show had been running on Broadway for probably years. And I had a small part, and I was a member of the, the men's chorus of soldiers. And my small part was a scene with John. So I, I waited in the wings during a ballad that he sang by himself on a, on the huge empty stage at the Alvin theater on Broadway and on 51st street. And um, he had a cigar and his cowboy boots and his beautiful baritone voice. And he commanded this. The audience was probably 2000 seats, probably 2,500 seats. He just commanded the, he had the audience in the palm of his hand and he strolled around the stage singing this ballad about his, called the Pickers are coming about his daughter. And, and it was, it was my moment every night to aspire to what he had and what he did and what he was, or it's, you know, he still is. So subconsciously, I guess his movement which is a little like a John Wayne walk, a little bit pigeon-toed, planted itself in, in my sense memory. So as I was finding Riker, one of the things I did subconsciously and now consciously, I guess, was uh, mimic John Cullum's walk. 
You knew that answer though, didn't you? I, I actually didn't. Uh, I was curious about that because I just had, I made that connection with Shenandoah and I realized that you guys share a lot of physical similarities. And I thought, you know, if you guys were both the same age working in the same era, you probably would have been going for those same type of strong leading man character roles. I mean, you're basically that similar type. He's a, he's 20 years older than me. Yeah. Had you been though, like around closer, oh, I feel I like, yeah. Yeah. You might've been like actually competing for those same parts. So uh, yeah, I just found it interesting that there, there actually is a re- legitimate connection. Of course. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I, I actually, as mentioned, I spoke to John Collum. This kind of leads into a real obscure question here. So I know at some point you had had a job working for Marvel playing Captain America at some events and things like that. I don't know if you're aware, in 1985, John Collum was actually cast to be in the Captain America musical on Broadway. That I did not know. What happened to that musical? Gone? That's a whole long story that we don't have time for. Uh, <laughs> it's a long, long thing. I was just curious because around that time, I don't know if you were, I know you were in Hollywood at that point, but I was curious if you'd even heard anything or auditioned or heard anything about that oh. show. My Captain America years were 1974 and five, maybe four or five. At the same time as Shenandoah, I guess, right? Well, when I got Shenandoah, I was done being Captain America. I'll tell oh, you. Okay. <laughs> that was a better gig. Um, <laughs> what about this Star Trek musical or Star Trek opera? What do you know about that? I don't know much about that. I haven't heard of anything about that one. Anything? I, I know nothing about that one. Now I feel left out. I got to learn about that. You better dig. I got some research to do. Oh, thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, we're big on musicals here on Trek Untold. It's just a thing that happens. Yeah, I wanted to spend some time today with you discussing directing, not so much playing Commander Riker. I mean, you've talked in depth about all these things, but uh, more so, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in the directing side of things. Uh, I work in production, post-production as well, so I've got a real interest in that. Uh, and I heard uh, your interview with No Film School, where you talked quite in depth about your origins in it. And uh, I'd love if you could spend just a little bit of time telling us how you basically transitioned from being an actor in Star Trek to an actor and director. One of the great cliches about acting that I think Robert Mitchum gets credit for is I act for free, they pay me to wait. So there's a lot of waiting. Even Brent Spiner will admit there's only so many naps you can take. So I, I found myself grateful to have a, be a series regular on a television series is, is uh, you know, a dream. But then I realized that this is a, the perfect because I had directed a little bit in college, but little theater things, and I and I realized this is a great opportunity for me to observe. So I uh, I started to shadow the the directors on our show sort of unofficially, and then I asked Rick Berman if I could shadow officially with the with the uh, aim of eventually getting to to direct, and he reluctantly allowed me and. As I showed interest and maintained my, uh, you know, I used to go in when when I wasn't shooting and I'd and I'd I'd spend the day in the set and then he finally opened up the uh, editor's room to me, and the editors on the show were very generous in spite of the fact that they also wanted to direct. And then Rick and I became closer and closer friends. Then he'd open up pre-production to me, so I'd be able to go to the casting sessions or I'd go to. Um, sometimes to the note sessions, sometimes to the production meetings, and then post-production, and I'd get into, which was my favorite part, was going to the scoring sessions. Uh, Dennis McCarthy was writing the music at the time, and, you know, 80-piece orchestra, and as an ex-trombone player, it was thrilling to be around all these musicians. So the 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 job of the director and the the scope of what the director does was revealed to me in what we affectionately refer to as Paramount University. So I was the beneficiary of all of these other experts time and experience and willingness to share 
and and I had a, I had another job. I had a job on the show, so it was it was a spectacular time. And I remember one specific morning, I was living in Jeannie's house in Tarzana, and I said, "I don't think I'll go in today." And she said, "That's exactly what Rick's waiting for is for you to to uh, you know stop or to lose interest." So I got in the car, went into work, and by the third season of Star Trek. He relented, if you will, and I was assigned an episode in the middle of the third season. And as it, my slot came up, it was um, Rene Echeverria's spec script, who's now a big writer, and this was his first script, which he had submitted to, uh, I guess, to Pillar at this point. And it was The Offspring, and it was a story of Brent creating his his daughter. And it had the advantage of being this brilliant script by Rene, who became one of our big writers. And then I ended up working for him on Castle as well. And it was a data story. And Brent Spiner is obviously, you know, awesome. And data is my favorite character. So that was happening. Whoopi was in it. I was able to cast Hallie Todd, who, who said, how should I, what should I do? I said, just watch Brent and you'll find data. And she did. And that was magical. Nick Coster was in it, who was a, an actor I'd known from the soaps, who was also fabulous. Crowfoot did the, uh, the small version of... So all of uh, the stars aligned. Because when you do 26 episodes of a season of a show, which we used to do, 22, I think, is now the long network season. We used to do 26 episodes of TV in 10 months. They're not all going to be home runs. So... This one, because of the things I just mentioned, and because I was so overprepared, and because I had the support of the crew and of the cast, ended up being a home run, at least in my mind, and I think it's certainly in some of the in the fans' minds as well. So because it went well, and because I came in on budget, eventually I got to direct a few more. And then it became clear to me that I was a much better director than I ever was as an actor, and that I was getting... I was getting more out of it. I was really enjoying the uh, the job. The job has is it's a lot more going on. There's a lot. I like people. I like to work with people. I like to be on the floor. I like the I like both sides of the camera. So there was a it was uh, it was uh, again it was like so many things with me in Star Trek. And this was another blessing that has gathered, that has stayed with me and provided me with the work I have now, because I'm now working on Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek Picard and Star Trek Strange New Worlds and Star Trek Lower Decks. So it has been that very first episode of Offspring. If that had not gone well, we probably wouldn't be talking about directing. <laughs> yeah, in that interview I mentioned earlier from No Film School, you, you said something similar in that how uh, you felt that you've been a better director than a better actor. But uh, I feel like it's maybe that's more just been more of a fulfilling thing for you to be a director. It's something that you have more of a desire to do. And maybe that's why you, you feel like you're perhaps better at one than the other when you're quite excellent at both those things. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. You know, talking about the Austrian amazing episode, uh, just one of the ones I actually, in fact, did rewatch for this episode. Uh, I forgot how great it was. And especially talk about Haley Todd, her performance is outstanding in that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, when we talk with other people who have had uh, actors who have directed, uh, I want to bring up Rene Auberjonois. Oftentimes he actually would get rehearsals. And I know on a show like Star Trek, you don't have time for that, but Renee was able to find time to get his crew to rehearse. Uh, for any of your episodes, were you able to do any rehearsals, especially with Hallie, and kind of like get everybody up to snuff on what you're looking for? 
we'd never had any time to rehearse, no. Occasionally, you would invite the actors to join you on a weekend for a read-through or to come in early, sort of off the record and work. But at some point on our show, we, we stopped even doing table reads. Table reads are a traditional part of prep on most episodes of television. And on our show, somehow, they they went away as well. So rehearsal is a luxury that one has in film and in theater. And I got to say again, now having not rewatched that episode in so long and seeing the scene that you're in, which is when uh, Lal gives Riker a big old kiss on the lips, uh, that was hilarious to me. I, I love just everybody's reaction in that scene. That was such perfect comedic timing. That was great. Uh, up over the bar and whoopies at uh, Guinan's, yeah. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, I love that part. And I also got to bring up this, too, because, you know, I think everybody kind of glosses over Patrick Stewart's performance in the episode because Law was so amazing, because Brent was so amazing. Uh, you know, Patrick, especially, I feel like in this one, he goes through a, a really big character change because we know the Picard character, he's not really fond of children. But here he is now, Data's raising his own child. Uh, and he goes through this process of in Act 1, he's all against it. And then by the last act of the episode, he's mourning the loss and he's being like almost like a grandfather, very much a paternal figure to Data. And I felt like you really got something very different out of Picard in that episode, very different out of Patrick than we normally would see. Patrick always found something to do. He's a master. I mean, people have said that you usually get the best out of Patrick, and I'd have to agree, like, for whatever reason, and that must, I'm assuming that's probably your chemistry that you have with him, uh, you're able to really get something different with him, something that he hasn't really given to other directors. We have a a, um, a natural shorthand. I mean, I'm, I'm about to start on uh, my block of episodes on Picard in the middle of April. And I, I look forward to my time with him as much as I look forward to anything else because of our, our, our shorthand. And I think, I think he trusts me. And that's, uh, I have that relationship with Sonequa on discovery where we look forward to finding the scenes together. And it's, um, it's really the best part of the gig. <laughs> Trek untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or a toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film or a part of a cosplay or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, Visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hello, everyone. I'm Armin Shimmerman. Perhaps you know me better as Quark from Deep Space Nine. As your favorite Ferengi, I'm here to promote a sale. It's not self-sealing stem bolts, but my new novel, Illyria. And the first book is called The Betrayal of Angels. Some of you may not know that aside from being an actor, I'm also a novelist. My newest novel is a mystery set in 1583. Its heroes are the historical characters of John Dee, who was a spiritualist, a book collector, and a spy. 
With him is an unsuccessful playwright named William Shakespeare. Their mission is to investigate a nobleman who happens to be Count Orsino from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. The book employs comedy, history, and fantasy to tell a page-turner of a story. It reads a lot like Sherlock Holmes or like one of my favorite shows, Homeland. Please check out my website at www.armandshimmelman, get the name right, .com, or you can get it directly from my publisher at www.jumpmasterpress.com. You can buy it either as a paperback, a hardback, or an ebook. So why don't you check it out and judge for yourself? Or better yet, give it as a gift to someone. I know they'll appreciate it. Uh, disclaimer, no Latin accepted. We now return to Trek Untold. I'm curious who is part of your visual vocabulary of directing in terms of, let's say, you know, directors you like to watch or films you like to watch that have influenced how you shoot things. Are there any films that stand out to you that you use? Uh, Jaws I steal from. Alien I steal from. I, I steal from the good. I steal from Spielberg. I steal from Ridley Scott. Uh, McTiernan. Um, Tarantino. Uh, Kurosawa, you, you know, you steal from the the, the masters when, when you can. <laughs> and as I was learning the craft of TV directing, you steal the shortcuts and you make a decision during prep that should I get in trouble in the 12th hour, what scene can I shoot in one or two setups and do it in an, an hour and a half or two hours or whatever? And what scene... Can we absolutely not sacrifice the time on? And we need to get so that's um, and that you learn. I, I, I learned from all the guys that I, you know it was Cliff Bowl and Rick Colby and uh, oh god, three or four other guys who were so so helpful. Anyway, their their names will will come to me, or you can add them to the to the list because it was most of those first and second season. Bob Shearer, you see their names on a lot of the episodes, and they were. Uh, really generous and efficiency and preparation is arguably the most important part of your uh, work as a director on television. Certainly. Yeah, there's definite economy to how you shoot something for television versus a movie. And yeah. I, I would like to ask a little bit more about how you basically balance that because you know, you're trying to make it yours. You're trying to make things stylish, but you also have to make sure you're within your time. You're within your budget. So, you know, as a director, especially starting out doing television directing with Star Trek show, how do you find that perfect balance between getting the economy of a scene versus the emotional intensity or just making something your own? Well, you can't sacrifice the emotion ever or the story ever. And the job of a director, I think I said this on the, um, on the other interview as well, the job of the director on a television show is, at least my interpretation of the job, is to make the best episode of that show that you can make. And on, on Star Trek, we had a certain style of shooting and it was very traditional and dare I say, old fashioned. And um, now on discovery, Star Trek, same types of story, same world, but because of what JJ brought to the franchise, we're now shooting much more theatrically and cinema cinematically. And as Robbie Duncan McDeal says, we shoot to thrill now. So I, I use as an example, I used to direct um, Castle. You know what Castle is? Nathan Fillion's show and Stana Kotick. And Rob Bowman, 
who I also stole a lot from, who was one of our directors, probably our youngest, most clever director in the first few seasons of, of Next Gen. He was the showrunner on, 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 on Castle. And he said to me on the first episode that he offered me, when I came in for the first day of prep, he said, Frakes, don't even waste our time with any multi-stop masters, which are shots in which the camera starts, say, taking someone out of an elevator and we push in for part of it and we follow them and then they stop somewhere else and we cover a little bit of that and then we move with them and we go to another part of the set and we and then we settle in. And so you, you find a way to shoot virtually the whole scene in one beautiful, elegant shot. He said, don't waste my time with it. We're never going to do it. This show doesn't do it. But make sure you get three sizes of close-ups on my leads. You know, down here, a uh, traditional close-up of collars, or what we used to call it, communicator, and a choker. So that's the way I shot that show, and that's the way that show was shot. And then I also, during that period of time, I was directing a series called Falling Skies, which is a post-apocalyptic show that stars Noah Wiley, who's another one of my... Uh, favorite actors that were in this sort of Sonequa Patrick Stewart simpatico relationship. Anyway, it was his show and we shot in, in Vancouver and it was really dirty, dark, nasty. And the, the marching orders there from Greg Beeman, who was the producing director on that show. And I guess from Spielberg who produced it, who I never met by the way, um, was that he wanted, he wanted it shot like a handheld documentary war footage, the show. So the exact opposite of what your marching orders were on Castle, you were meant to, you know, start with whoever you thought the pivotal character was in the scene and stay with that character and follow or lead or follow and lead, see how people respond to him and come back to him, see how he responds to things and come back to him or her and, and create long documentary style handheld shots that tell the story without all the traditional um, still coverage that you see in, in some other shows. So on Falling Skies, you had the freedom and, and responsibility to shoot that kind of style. And the camera was used in an entirely different way than it is on Star Trek or on Castle Art. And the same thing with NCIS. LA has a certain style. All the uh, leverage, we were very big on 360s on that show and on Librarians. Dean loves to move the camera and he likes his close-ups down just below the eye level. Different producers have really specific things that they want to make sure that that they get in their show. And as a viewer, you know, and I know, that's probably why when you're watching, you recognize the office when it's on because they've all looked into the lens, right? You can watch for 10 seconds. Oh, that's the office. Then you can click over and you can watch Castle and you see this and you say, oh yeah, there's Castle. And you, so, so the signatures of the show become part of what the audience is comfortable with and what they come back for. I mean, I believe they come back for the story and for how much they care about the characters. Whew. Didn't know I was going to give you such a long-winded answer. There you go. Oh, that's a great answer. It's a perfect answer. And, uh, you know, not to compare my work with your work, but... When it comes to my philosophy of shooting things, I like to think of it, uh, you know, I'm a big Kurosawa fan, so I will tend to kind of go to how his style is of things. But uh, in the back of my mind, I always have this a quote that I heard from Larry Hama, who is a comic book artist and a comic book writer. And one of the things he said was that no two shots should be the same on the same page. And that's, so that's something I always try and play with. Exactly what um, 
one of our early DPs said, never repeat a shot if you don't have to, especially when you're in the cutting room. And sometimes you have no choice but to cut back and forth. But no two shots should be on the same page. That's a that's good. That's words to. I'm gonna steal that one. But it's also you don't want to go too overboard either, because uh, another thing I like to keep in mind, I'm sure a lot of directors do this too, is, you know, if the show is on mute, you still need to be able to tell what's happening. So if you're not hearing it, and this is again a comic book thing too, if you're looking at a comic page, there's no words, you need to still know what the story is. Uh, is this something that you're as cognizant of on television? Absolutely. I think you you know you need to tell the story with a camera whenever possible. Another another adage that we can add to this list is uh, Sherry Lansing used to be the head of Paramount when we were making the movies. We were looking at the rough cut of either First Contact or Insurrection, and she said, Frakes, never be afraid to shoot wide. So I always think of an exterior as, as the room, as the biggest room I could, how wide could I possibly get? And when I'm in a set, it's the same thing. Where's the furthest away from this site I could get? So that even if you use that shot for three seconds, or even if you don't use it, the editor is going to be thrilled to have it. There might be a place you can use it. And you've, you've, it's, I mean, um, Aaron Spelling used to insist that you had what they call a geography shot. So you knew and you saw everything. And I, I used to like to either go real high or real low to get those. And sometimes we use eight millimeter now so you can feel the whole thing wrap around you. But television is traditionally such a close up medium. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of wonderful to shoot really, really wide occasionally. And often you find that people will use it, even when they use it for a cut, a cut, which is often all you need for it. It's worth, it's worth doing. I also find that for your directors who are watching, if you don't get that shot early in their shooting sequence, that'll be the one that the AD or the somebody, the line producer, the line producer will say, you, know, you don't need that wide shot. Never forget, you do need that fucking wide shot. <laughs> I feel like, you know, in the last 10, 15 years, the tight shots have been everything. Like everything you see on TV, it's all about that really deep, uh, really, really wide depth of field and getting that super tight shot where everything behind it is so blurry, you can't see anything. Whereas the wide shot is such an important visual storyteller. I mean, what, what do you think about that? I think you got to save those tights. I, I love, I, nobody loves an ECU more than I do. But if you save it and use it tastefully, and especially when you got actors like, you know, the people I was just referencing, Sonequa and, and uh, Noah and, and Patrick, who I used to, I always say, let's go in and see what they're thinking. That's what I use. And so you get in, but you got to use it sparingly, use it carefully. And some people like to go in with a wide, you know, a 65 and get it right in there. So everything is mushy behind. And some people like to go to a 300 so that it's, you know, it, it gives you two different feelings, either wide and tight or long and tight. And it's two entirely different worlds. So I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit about another episode, which uh, you didn't direct this one. This is one that you were very important in, though. And that's The Outcast. Uh, I just rewatched this one again. Uh, another beautiful episode I completely kind of forgot about. And uh, it's an interesting one, too, because it's kind of like we're looking at early 90s progressivism here for LGBT topics. Uh, yeah. And I was surprised how well it aged. I mean, again, this is coming from uh, a straight white cis dude here. But uh, for the most part, I'd say it ages pretty well. Some things, maybe not as much. But overall, it's for what it is. It, it holds up in today's modern lens. I'd love to hear a little bit about working on that episode because that's such an interesting and topical one too. It was a wonderfully topical episode and it was right in Roddenberry's wheelhouse of how he likes to tell stories allegorically and using the time of the future as to relate on or to comment on what's going on in the present. And the opportunity was there to cast uh, a man in, in, as the part of, of the outcast. 
instead of an androgynous woman so that it, it just seemed to me that if they're, if they're going to tell the story, which I think was a great LGBT story, would you not have cast certainly if you did it now, you'd cast a man in that part, right? That's one of the criticisms I see today uh, looking at it to the modern perspective is that everybody's saying it would have been so much more amazing to show the androgyny with male actors because for the most part, that alien race, the Janai, it was predominantly females playing those characters. Ridiculous. Yeah. Where was that? The early 90s? Yeah, definitely. Early. I think it was season five that was from. So, yeah, it's it's pretty uh, pretty hot topic considering the time it was coming from, too. Yeah. And now we have on uh, Discovery, we have Anthony Rapp and Wilson Cruz, who are both gay icons, are ma- married to each other on the show. And it's then they're, they're fantastic representatives. And we have Blue and Ian who identify they they are playing characters who are what they are and it's it's uh it's and this is a credit to michelle paradise and to alex kurtzman who have made an effort to do it the right way if you will yeah the times have definitely changed and things have definitely gotten better so it's great to see that representation yeah Uh, but i'm kind of curious now about the character of Riker here understanding today what we know more about sexuality what do you think Riker's affiliation would have been Especially looking at this episode that we're talking about right now, you know, do you believe that Riker was straight? Was he bi? Would he have been omnisexual? What would you have labeled him? Riker always felt straight to me. I mean, he had a healthy respect for uh, alien women. That I don't know what that, how you would describe that. Certainly, he knew how to serve on the Klingon ship, but uh, his heart was always with Troy. One of the things that Marina and I take great pride in is that. If you recall in the pilot, part of the story they tell is that Riker and Marina, a Riker and Troy, had served together, uh, were in love, and shared empathic thoughts. That Riker somehow, not only her, her betazoid qualities were maintained through the show, but there was a scene, I believe, where Riker knew what she thought or felt what she felt. In. And you could tell that even though they had made a decision that they were serving together, so we'll our relationship will be not at the forefront. And then eventually, because the writers wanted, I'm assuming this as well, the writers wanted to free Troy up to have affairs with uh, alien guest stars, if you will. And Riker the same way Riker went sort of the, without the same degree that Kirk did, but had the sort of alien lover in every port kind of vibe or one, a couple of times a season. But Marina and I consciously and talked about it, on a regular basis insisted that we still loved each other. Our characters still loved each other and that, that that would inform, you know, how actors, actors often as part of their technique have a secret as part of what they use for their character. While this wasn't a secret, this was part of what my acting teacher used to call our packing. We used to, uh, that was packed in, in both Marina and Jonathan's approach to Troy and Riker so that in a scene, if we, our characters would look at each other occasionally and it would relate to that, to our relationship and not necessarily to the scene or how our relationship was affected by the scene or how our relationship could influence the scene. And and I think, and I could be completely egomaniacal about this, but I, I believe that that worked and kept our relationship alive subconsciously, perhaps in the writer's minds 
And then you flash forward to Nemesis where we they thought, oh, wouldn't it be a great idea if these two characters got married? And all the fans rejoiced, of course, because everybody wanted to see that. That was the ship we all wanted to see sail. So that worked out well. Uh, but I am curious, and I'm not asking you to kiss and tell here, but uh, I'd like to know, were there any romantic guest stars you worked with that you would have loved to have seen come back and continue to have some kind of relationship with Riker that more so selfishly you would have just liked to have worked with some more? Oh, I was a huge uh, Michelle Forbes fan. Oh, uh, yeah. And I, I, I was able to work with her again on something else, and uh, I think she's a spectacular president. And th- they wanted her to play Kira, I believe. Is that not the case? No, I was. that was... Uh, Riker and Frakes both like Michelle Forbes. So let's jump into another pretty hot episode that I love to talk about. It's a guilty pleasure, and I think everybody loves it. That's Sub Rosa. Uh, I know you've talked yeah. a little bit here and there about it. You can already see where I'm going with this. Uh, and it's just to let you know, too, I've actually spoken to Duncan Regeer in depth about this episode. And he had really? a lot of good things to say about this one. Yeah. Duncan's doing really well. Yeah, he, he uh, you know, he came by, we chatted about uh, his DS9 work as well, and a lot of other things he's done in his career. He's got a wonderful career on stage and screen, too. And he's a painter as well, is he not? Or is he just a character painter? He's a painter these days. He's very, very deep in his painting. Uh, he has, a, I think, a permanent show now in one gallery uh, in Canada, I believe it is. Uh, so he, he's very prolific with his work, yeah. Written and on and painted. And he was such a matinee idol. I mean, he was so gorgeous. Oh, yeah, that, that's the leading man right there. That's, that's the look yeah, of the leading that's, man. That's, he's like John Cullum. Exactly, yeah. Same yeah. kind of school of thought there. Yeah, so the chemistry that Duncan had with Gates was just magic also. I mean, as much as that episode gets panned for maybe some of the themes, uh, the acting was amazing. So, I mean, please talk to me about uh, what you did with Duncan, what you did with Gates, kind of get everything to come together. Gates was so underused. You know, uh, there were so many characters on the show that uh, Dr. Crusher didn't get to carry a lot of episodes. And I believe Brandon Braga wrote this episode. So Brandon created this episode for Gates and I was lucky to get the the uh, directing assignment. And then we cast Duncan. You don't always get a great, you don't, the ca- casting is, is huge, as you probably know. So the chemistry between Duncan and Gates just happened. I had nothing to do with that. So I was there to enable it, if you will. I mean, it was like Alfred Woodard and Patrick Stewart in, in First Contact. I just sat under the camera and watched these two go for it. And, and the same was true with Gates. I just... I think I was working with, um, I think it was with Marvin Rush. And we just found cool ways to shoot it. And all, there were all these candles and shots. And it was it was kind of a non-Star Trek Star Trek. So it was, it was a, a bit of a horror movie uh, or, or a, um, it was like a Twilight. Remember the movie? It was that vibe. It was sexy. And it was that, that was the genre that it was pre-Twilight Twilight. I mean, to me, with all the smoke and all the kind of gothic sets, it reminded me a lot of like a universal horror film from like the 30s. Was yeah. there like any films you were trying to reference? There was not, nothing specific, but that was, we were taking, we were grateful to be off the ship with all that hot top lighting and find, uh, you know, a, a different, the show had a different look. And the only reason you knew that it was our show was because you saw Dr. Crusher in it. You know, there was very little of any of the rest of us in the show, as I recall. It's a real interesting episode, too. I mean, it, it, it gets a kind of a bad rap, I'd say. And the interesting thing about that one, too, is Duncan said he actually preferred the character of Ronan in this episode versus the character he played in DS9 for, like, five episodes. Because he actually felt in this one episode he got to do so much more than he ever did in Deep Space Nine. So how about that? I think that's a good... I think that's a compliment. I, I think it is. I think it counts, yeah. So Sub Rosa is often referred to as, like, one of the worst episodes of TNG. Uh, you know, it's not one of the most awesome ones in terms of space fights, that kind of thing. It's definitely a departure, as we mentioned. Uh, but, I mean, do you think it actually is one of the worst? And more so, are you surprised this episode is still discussed so in-depth? Everybody has uh, 
you know, they're like assholes. Everybody's got one. Opinions are, I, I just love the fact that this, is, this shows from 1987 and we're, you and I are still talking about it. Yeah, there you go. That, that's Sub Rosa in a nutshell. It's just always going to be talked about. It's just one of those episodes, it's one of those oddities, but it's, it was a visually interesting one too. I mean, you guys got such great performances out of everybody. Uh, it's for that part, it's brilliant. So yeah, bizarre episode. Otherwise, <laughs> I can tell it's not one of your top 10 favorites. Uh, I, I would definitely say it is not. Uh, <laughs> I got to say a new favorite of mine has been uh, watching Star Trek Picard. And I just also, again, rewatched the Pente for this interview today. And, uh, you know, I, I know that we've spent a lot of time talking about Marina. We spent a lot of time talking about Sir Patrick. Um, and I know you guys see each other at cons quite frequently, to say the least. But that hug that you guys have in the episode, I mean, it, it feels so real. I mean, how real was that moment? Oh, it was very easy to play. The hug with Patrick. Yeah, it was it was very, very easy to play. There was so much going on. I think it was the same day that um, Dorn and LeVar came to visit us. So there was, it was really old home week. And I had just finished doing two episodes with Patrick. So I, I was really, I was back in the groove with him and, and Marina had just closed in this play. She's starring in a play in the West end. So her acting chops were up at the top of her game. And I was, I was really nervous about my acting. And this was a chance to take some of Patrick's energy and power and, and uh, absorb it and relax into the, to the day as, as Riker instead of, uh, as, as his director. And I think it, it was, it was interesting. It was, it was very emotional to do. And obviously other people have mentioned this to me. Also, it didn't hurt that Shabon or somebody suggested put some of that uh, pizza dough on your hand or the, or the uh, flour and we'll, that'll reflect some of your passion. Absolutely. It's always good to have that dramatic flair. <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering if there's any other times when you filmed, uh, let's say, TNG episodes, but I'll even stretch this to any other shows you've worked on, where uh, maybe a scene got really real for you and a little bit of Jonathan Frakes got lost in the character as you were performing. Can you recall any times that ever happened to you? I was confused, and I had to trust Jimmy Conway when we were doing... Um, what was the episode where Riker went crazy? Or the name of the show just went out of my head, where he was in the insane asylum. I, I was um, encouraged to be out of control psychologically, and, and it, I didn't know how to play that, so I just let myself imagine what it might be like, and I trusted the, the director. But I think more to your point, or maybe off point, but more appropriately, I do remember very specifically when we were shooting All Good Things, which was the last episode of the, of the series, and uh, Picard comes to our poker game for the first time. And the poker game was a great um, anchor for us. We, we really looked forward to those scenes. And the story was built and built and built to the idea that Picard actually joined us. And that was very, so the, the setup was great. And it was very close to the last day of shooting. It wasn't actually the last day, because I think Delancey told me he shot on the very last day of, the, of Next Gen. But it, was, it felt like the last day for all of us who were together. And this is in spite of the fact that we all knew we were going on to Generations. Like within weeks, we had a we had a job in a movie, so it wasn't like we were never going to see each other again. But because Next Gen was so special and changed all of our lives, obviously, there was something about that day at work where all of us were just uh, incredibly. Our emotions were very raw and very much on on the surface, and there was a lot of there was a lot of love and a lot of uh, locking the memory in, if you know what I mean. So that it was, it, it would be able to, we'd be able to access it 
and, I, and all of us across the board, both sides of the camera were doing it. And I remember that experience very, very specifically. And very, it was a very strong uh, chi, if you will, in the, in the room. You know, a lot of good shit out of me here, Matthew. I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying. <laughs> As we come to the conclusion here of this interview, I'd love to find out, you know, again, we talked about some of your favorite directors, but if you had a chance to shadow any one director throughout history, who would it be? Who would you want to learn from? Well, my favorite movie is Goodfellas. And Scorsese is uh, encyclopedic about film. And I think I think I I think it'd be a blast to watch him work. Frankly, that would definitely be an interesting one. I mean, I personally would love David to have been Lean. around Kurosawa. I'd love to see how he worked. Yeah, David Lean. Oh yeah, there, I, honestly, I'd love to work with Robert Wise if I could have, like, because he was so prolific and did so many amazing and like also very different types of films. He'd be amazing to watch. In spite of, in spite of Star Trek. In spite of Star Trek, although I will say that first motion picture, while it might not be the best visually, it's stunning. It's it's a wonderful thing to look at. Sitting through two hours of it, not so much. He did direct Sound of Music. He did Sound of Music, and he did West Side Story. Don't forget that one, too. Always. You do come back to the musicals, don't you? We do come back, then we do, yeah. Uh, And speaking of musicals, wow, another great segue. You're a pro at this, Jonathan. Who knew, right? Uh, Anthony Rapp, I heard, was shadowing you during season three of Discovery. So uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about what he was learning, what you were teaching him. What what are the ropes that you showed to Anthony Rapp? A lot of the things that I've shared with you, I've shared with him. And his instincts are great. And he's going to be a wonderful director. So do you believe that Anthony will be ready to, let's say, sit in the director's chair for season four of Discovery? I think Anthony, he's shadowed um, Tunde and he shadowed Hanley and he shadowed me. He may have shadowed other directors as well. And he's been doing it a long time. I think I think Anthony's going to be ready as soon as they're willing to give him the reins. Yeah. And we know that you're gearing up also for, uh, I know Picard's going to be starting, I think, soon as well, and uh, Strange New Worlds, which I heard you're going to be doing some work on too. And I know, obviously, you can't say much yet because it's all, you know, top secret, hush, hush. But uh, have you had a chance to talk with any of the principal cast yet, just in general, get to know them? On Strange New Worlds? Yes. Well, I, I know Anson and Rebecca and Ethan very well. Rebecca, I did another ser- series with. I was very, very involved with Ethan when he was finding Spock. And I did must have done a God, three, four shows with Anson during season two of, of, of Discovery. So I was uh, I have strong ongoing. I, I play words with friends with them. Let me just go that far. All right. So, Jonathan, you know, there's so much more I'd love to ask, but we only got so much time today and I can only monopolize you for so long. I know. But uh, I just want to thank you again for being willing to chat with me today. Uh, it's Surreal, again, I can't get over this, and I'm staring face-to-face with Jonathan Frakes. I got an hour with him, so uh, I'm going to go and go nuts a little bit after this is done. But yeah, one more time, uh, PanCan Organization. How can my audience find out more about them? PanCan.com, and signed up for the Purple Stride LA, and follow the Trek Against Pancreatic Cancer team, and throw some money at Kitty Swink. <laughs> absolutely so yeah please check out the pancreatic cancer action network we're gonna have links to that in the show notes and again jonathan uh, this is a, a dream come true uh I, i'm kind of speechless i don't know how i managed to get this many words out this past hour but uh you know thank you so much for your work and uh I, i've loved seeing your work I, I love seeing what you're gonna do next i cannot wait to see what is next for you star trek and beyond so uh thank you again for just sharing so much of your stories with us today and uh i'm gonna go babble somewhere else now so thank you jonathan matthew you did a great job and you um made me feel comfortable enough to share in detail some stories I haven't told in a, in a long, long time. Oh, uh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And that was our chat with Mr. Jonathan Frakes, who I cannot be more grateful to for being willing to join us in this episode. 
There's a million kind words I want to say to him, and thanks is just one of them. But he is truly a great human being, and on a personal note, I'm not going to forget this episode anytime soon. When you're speaking with somebody like Jonathan, it's hard to try and get new information out of him because he's done so many conventions and so many panels over the years. And it's got to be a pain to do interviews like these sometimes, where you're just talking about things you've already discussed again and again. So I'm hoping that Jonathan had as much fun as I did, because this one really meant a lot to me. As we mentioned at the top of the show, this episode marks the 50th episode of Trek Untold and the almost one-year anniversary of this podcast. The first episode aired back on May 7th, 2020, although we did have a preview episode the week before that, which I'm not counting here. That debut episode had Caitlin Hopkins as my very first guest, and she actually was the very first person I ever interviewed for the show. A lot of times, these episodes don't air in the chronological order of me recording them, but Caitlin was in fact the very first ever that I had done for this concept, and I gotta tell you guys, I was so stiff in that pilot episode, it's kind of embarrassing hearing myself now, but I wouldn't change a thing even if I could today. Trek Untold was my pandemic project, but it was also an idea that was brewing in the back of my mind for almost a year before. Having the world go on full stop thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic gave me the opportunity to finally pursue this podcast, and it's been a whirlwind experience since then. I've had the chance to speak with so many different interesting people, some I never thought I would have a chance to ever even meet, let alone spend an hour with them. So I want to once again give those guests my gratitude for giving me so much of their time and so much of their energy and letting me tell a little bit of their stories and share it with you. While I love having the chance to speak with leads like Mr. Frakes or Mr. Armin Shimmerman, Alexander Siddig, Max Rodenchik, and Chase Masterson, this show has always been about the folks who don't get the same attention. Everyone, no matter what your career is, wants recognition and respect for the hard work they've done. This show has been about doing that and showing our gratitude to the people whose backs the Star Trek universe and many other aspects of Hollywood have been built on. And I hope you've enjoyed meeting these people and learning to appreciate what they've contributed to their respective fields. And speaking of, I can't forget the most important part of this show, and that's you. Thanks to your support, you've helped grow this show more and more each week. We just wrapped up year one, but we've got a lot more stories to discover from all sorts of people in the Star Trek universe. I was worried I wouldn't even make it this far, or worse, I would hit this landmark and fall out of love with the concept. But I'm excited to say I'm more stoked than ever to keep going forward, seek out new interviews and new guests, and boldly ask questions to uncover more untold stories. So I hope you'll stick around with me for this ride for a little bit longer, because I couldn't do it without you. So that wraps up this week's episode of Trek Untold. Thank you so much for checking it out this week. Please make sure that you're following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Trek Untold. That's one word, no spaces, at Trek Untold. It's the best way to get updates on guests, check out all the memes and other things that we're posting, and interact with myself and other Star Trek fans. If you'd like to support this podcast, go ahead and check out patreon.com slash trekuntold and become a subscriber to the show. Or check out teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold to check out some of our merchandise. If you've been enjoying Trek Untold, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to podcasts. And if you're on YouTube, please give the video a thumbs up and subscribe to our channel, youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday. Leaving ratings, reviews, and comments are things that all help this podcast grow, and they'll cost you nothing but a few seconds of your time. Doing things like that, or even telling your friends or other Star Trek fans about the stuff you've heard on the show and making sure they know about us are huge helps to keeping Trek Untold growing. Thank you once again to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. Go ahead and check them out at triple-fictionproductions.net. If you'd like to send us some feedback about this episode, suggest a guest, or ask to be booked on the show, go ahead and send me an email at trekuntold at gmail.com. And of course, thanks to listeners like you for choosing Trek Untold and making it your weekly Star Trek podcast. This has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and until next time, fortune favors the bold. 
Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.